Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks for this time. We ask now that you would come and help both the preaching and the hearing of your word. So be with my mouth and your people's ears that we would speak you what you want us to speak, your word, and that we would hear what you want us to hear, your word, and by both that our lives might be changed. We ask that in the same way that Jesus met up on that seven-mile road and their hearts were burning as he opened the scriptures to them and their minds understood that they all testified about him, our hearts too would be burning today as we consider your word and as we see the connections to Jesus Christ and that these scriptures and even this story this morning testifies about him. Do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, my mom stayed with us for a few days, and one night she came into my room and she said, I've got a question. I was reading the Bible and there's something that I don't understand. And she said, uh, I was reading the Bible and there's something I'm having a hard time believing. Now, I'm a pastor, so that's not uncommon for me, right? If you read the Bible for any time at all, you're going to have questions. There's a lot in there you don't understand. There's a lot in there that you'll have a hard time believing. Some of this stuff is hard to believe. And so as she asked that, I'm sort of pulling my mental Rolodex of all the difficult questions and sort of some of the answers to those questions. So I'm preparing myself. And she goes, I was reading Acts 5. And so I scratched myself for a second and I thought, you know, there, there's nothing hard in Acts 5. And she said, I was reading the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it's the story of these two people. They both lie to God and to the church. And God judges them, strikes them dead. And Ananias lies first. And so... He dies, they bury him. Sapphira doesn't even know about it. She shows up, she lies, she dies, they bury her. And she goes, I'm having a, a really hard time believing that. I can't believe that that would happen. So I said, what is there that you don't believe? What's so hard about that to believe, Ma? And she said, I can't believe that they would bury a husband without telling the wife. And so I sort of laughed out loud because I was like, Ma, I mean, I'm thinking you've got questions about how did Jonah survive in the belly of the fish or how did Daniel come out of that lion's pit alive? Nobody struggles with that, right? That, that's easy. And, and she, here's the thing, she's from a different cultural background. She's got a different mindset. She said, you know, those things don't stump her at all. The, th the things that stump me and my peers don't bother her in the least. In fact, she said, he's God. Of course he could get a, a man in the belly of a fish or out of a lion's dead. God could do any of that. I don't have a hard time believing any of that. But tell me, how can you bury a husband without telling the wife, right? That's what she had a really hard time with. And I eventually said, I laughed again, and I said, Ma, I have no idea. And she was a bit dissatisfied, and she said, okay, maybe you should go back to seminary. That's what she said. I kid you not. I thought of that this week as I was reading Genesis 6 through 9. And I was reading the story of Noah and the flood because I don't know about you, but as I read this, there's a thousand questions that sort of jump out at me. How did Noah get all the animals? How did they all fit into the ark? How did they not eat each other or eat Noah? How big was this flood to begin with? And as I'm sort of racking my brain with all these questions, then finally I watched Evan Almighty with Morgan Freeman and Steve Carell and suddenly everything was answered. It all made sense to me. I'm not kidding, by the way. On Saturday morning, Micah and I watched Evan Almighty as part of my prep for this, right? 
I've read as much as I could possibly read this week, and if you've got questions about some of the details of this story, I'd love to engage you on some of those things, some of those questions or, or things that really bother us. But as I've studied this week, here's what I've come to see. In a lot of ways, Genesis is like my mom about this whole thing. Genesis isn't bothered by the things that we're very bothered by by the details that we're very concerned with. Genesis doesn't even seem to raise the questions that are our questions. Genesis has a particular point. It's not telling you world history. It's trying to tell you the story of God and of God's people. And it's got a very narrow focus. It's a theological book. And so, of course, it speaks of history, but it does so for its own purposes. So. Genesis is very happy to tell you that there was one man and one woman. They had two kids, Adam and Eve, Abel, Cain and Abel. One died. Cain has kids, and it doesn't ever bother to tell you where his wife comes from. And it's perfectly happy to do that. Genesis is happy to tell you that the animals boarded the ark two by two without ever bothering to explain how did they get there. Genesis has lots of details that it is perfectly without embarrassment, ready to give, without explaining, because Genesis has a point, an aim. And again, I'd say to you, I'm more than happy to talk with some of the details in this story with you, as best as I've read this week. But here's what I would say. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever received about reading the scriptures, about weighing the merit of the Bible, of deciding whether or not to trust this book, is this book trustworthy, is this. Start with Jesus. And what that means is, don't ignore the mountain that is standing out of the book because you keep tripping on the molehills that are by the sides. It's not that Noah in the ark isn't important, but the point is, before you start with whether Noah came out of the ark, start with, did Jesus come out of the grave? Because if he didn't, none of the other stuff matters. If he didn't, then all this book essentially is, is some morality. And to be completely honest and humble, you can go to lots of places for morality. If the point of the book is to make you a better person, then I honestly don't know that Christianity has anything unique to offer that you can't find somewhere else or in another worldview or religion. If the point of this book is here's how you become a very good person, then you can find that anywhere. And I don't know that Christianity has anything unique to offer that sets it above and apart from all the rest. So start with, did Jesus come out of the grave? Because if he did, then that changes everything because then it validates his claims about who he said he is and was. And if he is who he said he is, then his opinions about everything suddenly matter. And his take on anything suddenly matters. And incidentally, Jesus seemed to believe in Noah. He spoke of Noah in both Matthew 24 and Luke 17. And he spoke of Noah as a real person who built a real ark because of a real flood. And, and here's what I'd submit to you. Ultimately, the story of Noah is much bigger than the story of the man who built the arky arky so that the animals could come in by twosie twosies. If you don't get that joke, you're probably lucky, and I'm definitely not explaining that to you, right? The story is much bigger than that because the aim of Genesis 6 through 9 is something much more universal that we can all get. What Genesis 6 through 9 is laboring to try and communicate is, 
Here's the human condition, and here's God's response to our condition. When Genesis 6, verse, Genesis 6 through 9 is laboring to communicate is, here's our condition as human beings, and here is God's response to that condition. So Genesis 6 is going to tell us our condition, and it's going to show us two ways in which God responds to that condition. So let's start with the first. The first thing that the story of Noah and the flood reveals is our human condition. Look at this telling verse in Genesis 6, verse 5. We're going to be parked out in Genesis 6 this morning. In Genesis 6, verse 5, this is what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So how do we get to this verse? If you remember, Genesis 1 and 2, everything starts out great. Genesis 3, everything goes bad. Genesis 4 and following is going to describe how bad it gets. And in Genesis 6 verse 5, it's almost as if Moses, as he's writing this passage, draws back language from Genesis 1. He says, the Lord saw. And immediately the hearer would know, I I've heard that phrase before. When God was creating, remember, on the first day he made, and the Lord saw, and it was good. And on the second day, he saw, and it was good. And that refrain keeps happening. The Lord saw, and everything he saw, it was good. And it's almost like this great irony that he brings that phrase back in Genesis 6 to say, and now the Lord saw, after sin had entered into the world. And what did he see? Everything was not good. In fact, everything was continually wickedness all the time. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then it uses these phrases, pay attention to them. Every, only, continually, every thought of his heart was only evil. Continually, every, only, all. That everybody was thinking and doing evil continually, only, all the time. I mean, it's this picture of the depravity of man, this complete picture of how everything about him all the time only was bent away from God and evil. Now here's the thing, Seven Mile Road. Is that a description of that generation of the human race because the people back then were just especially bad, particularly bad, much worse than everyone else, that they were really bad? No, Seven Mile Road. Because if you read the Bible long enough, you begin to realize that those are the same ways God describes not just that generation of the human race, but every generation of the human race. That is that if God were to make an assessment of us, these would be the same words he uses to describe us. In fact, listen to these words from Romans 3, verse 10. And this is in our era describing us. And here's what it says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So here's what we do. We hear that and we much soften the blow of that. And we, we turn those nuns and no ones into some. So we'll go, some are not righteous. Some don't understand, some don't seek God, some have turned aside, some have become worthless, some don't do good, some. 
And the text won't give you that. The text says, no one, no one's righteous, no one does good, no one seeks for God, no, not even one. That the human condition, apart from God's grace, that how we are naturally is, we are, every one of us, only wicked and evil all the time, continually. This is who we are. And we want to push back and go, surely, I mean, surely this is a gross exaggeration. There's a point that the person might be trying to make, but surely this is an exaggeration. We can't be that bad. And here's why we think that. I was instructed and helped so much by the ministry of some preachers this week as I was thinking through this and reading this week. We think that because you and I see sin in, in a way, we define sin in a way that it hardly even affects us. It hardly disturbs us. The news that you're sinful doesn't really do much to you. Why? It's because of how you and I understand sin. You know how you, if, if you're like me, when you think of sin, you probably think of a list of stuff you shouldn't do that you do. So what's sin? Sin is a bunch of stuff you weren't supposed to do that you did. I shouldn't have lied. I lied. I shouldn't have yelled. I yelled. I shouldn't have got angry. I got angry. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I did that. So sin, at worst in your mind, is a list of some stuff that you weren't supposed to do. No one's really perfect. I didn't do it either. And so because of that, sin is just a mistake, a misstep. It's, it's nothing devastating to us. It's, it's some don'ts that we have done. And yet here's what I want you to hear from the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 has a very succinct, short, simple definition of what your life, which God gave you, is supposed to be about. Here's what your life is supposed to be about. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Here's what that's saying. It's saying your life in every moment, whether it's something as simple as you drinking a cup of orange juice or the whatever you do is large enough a net to encompass everything, right? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, the whatever you do throws a net on every waking moment of your life. The whatever you do throws a net around the sum of your life. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the point is that whether you're doing something as small as drinking a cup of coffee or the biggest, most important thing you can imagine doing, all of your life, ceaselessly, moment by moment, is supposed to be God-centered, God-focused, God-directed, God-extolling to the glory of God. You're to do everything in every waking moment of life with a view of God, of the greatness of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God. You are to treasure God in every waking moment of life so that sin is any failure to do that. Sin is not doing that. Sin is you falling short of maximally thinking of God in everything you do. Sin is, is much more pervasive than I didn't do this and I was supposed to or I did do that and I wasn't supposed to. Sin is if there is a waking moment in your soul where you are not God-centered, God-focused, God-directed, doing this for the glory of God, that's sin. So then I would ask you, how are you doing? 
How are you doing with, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God? How are you doing with that? What that means is, that means there's a way to change a diaper that is sinful and a way to change a diaper that's glorifying to God. Because that falls in the whatever you do. That, that means that there's a way to eat that is glorifying to God and a way to not to eat that is sinful. And it's not even just, if I'm gluttonous, then I'm doing it to the glory of God. No, 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 it's, it's much more pervasive than that. It's that if you can eat a bite of food without a view of God, without dependency of God, without glory to God, without thankfulness to God, without God in view, it's sin. So what that does is it throws a net over the sum of my life and shows me that my sinfulness is much deeper than a short list of some mistakes this week. Did I value God every waking moment of the day? Treasure God above the many trinkets that I treasure? Desire God over everything else? Did I see God for who He is and value Him as I ought to have? If I haven't, it's sin. Sin is anything that is not done for the glory of God. So here's what that means, and you're not going to like this, but I need you to hear it. That means in our natural condition, apart from faith, all we do all the time is sin. You got to hear that again. That means apart from faith, everything you do is sin. In fact, the Bible will go so far as to say verses like Hebrews, it is impossible to please God without faith. Or verses like Romans 14, whatever is not done with faith is sin. Because if you're going to follow the trajectory of that, here's what that means. That means if you're not a Christian, everything you do is sin. Now, if you're paying attention, you're going to push back. Did you hear what I just said? If you're not a Christian, everything you do is sin. Feeding the poor is sin. And you go, what are you talking about? How is that sin? And here's the point. What Romans is teaching, what the scriptures are teaching is, you can do an act that is externally right and yet it not please God and still be sin. Now, should a non-Christian feed a poor person rather than murdering someone? Absolutely. And yet, the point is, something can be externally right and yet without faith, God has no pleasure in it. It is sin. An example that one preacher gave is, and no example is great or perfect, but the idea would be, if I had a teenage son and I told my teenage son, who asked me if he could borrow the car to go to the basketball game, you can borrow the car, I want you to wash it before you go. And he goes, wash it, and he's fuming, and he's furious, and he's mad, and he's huffing, and he's puffing, and he storms out of the room. Now, if, if the father said, listen, I'm not trying to give you a hard time, but I'd like you to wash it before you go. That's the requirement. If, if he storms out, now he's doing something wrong. There's, that, that's not right. There's no honor there. There's no gratitude there. There's nothing there. Now, if an hour later, you see this boy scrubbing the car, going, I hate dad, I hate dad, and all the while cleaning this car while he's fuming inside, you'd go an hour later, you know what? What he did was... Did he do what his father told him to do? Did he do what was right? 
I guess so. Externally, there's a sense in which that was right. But you know that the father takes no pleasure in that. His, his heart is as a, as a disposition that is away from his father. So that the scriptures are saying, look, if sin is not just a list of stuff you shouldn't do, if sin is anything that is not to the glory of God, then someone who doesn't even have faith in God can't do anything that is to the glory of God or pleasing to God. And so the same verdict of Genesis 6 would sweep across all of us. Every thought and intention of man was evil only all the time. Your sin is much more pervasive than you think. And so what that means is all of us and this world is drowning in sin. Underneath an ocean of sin. Under a flood of sin. And Genesis 6 tells you, here's how that sinfulness worked itself out. Look at verse 11. Here's how that sin played itself out. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So in that sinfulness, here's how it played out in that generation of the human race. There was unspeakable violence. Now as you hear that, please don't think for even a millisecond that we are somehow a better generation of the human race than that. As if with all our advancement and progress of human civilization that we've come so far that we wouldn't be described in that same way. By the last report I read, 39 people in a mall in Kenya were shot to death yesterday. So don't imagine for a second that violence is any less in the generation of the human race we live in now. So what that means then is that what could have been said of them then could have been said of us now. And then what that means is that what that generation got in Genesis 6 is what the human generation still deserves. That what happened in Genesis 6 is what this generation of the human race deserves. Our condition is that we're sinful. So then the story of Noah and the flood shows us two ways in which God responds. Let me give you them quickly. Here's the first. The first way God responds is God judges sinners. God judges sinners. For some of us, if you're honest, it actually surprises you that God actually judges. It's almost as if you have come to expect a God that is merciful all the time, that is gracious all the time, that always lets things go, almost that it catches you by surprise that he actually does something, that he actually judges sin. It's almost like it catches you off guard because if you're honest, and you would never say this out loud, but it's almost like you imagine God is a lot more bark than bite. He's always going to talk about how he's going to do some stuff, but he's never really going to come down on anyone. And then you read verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's not bark without bite. In fact, Let's not miss what the flood story is. If you've seen Noah's Ark depicted, you've probably seen it in kids' storybooks or, or on blankets sewn for children. And, and what does Noah's Ark look like? 
It's this cute little boat with some fluffy animals and everybody's smiling and there's a rainbow and a sun and calm waters and a cloud. And in that sanitized, cleaned up version, we miss what this story was. We miss what this story actually is. Because Genesis 6 is saying, God looked down on a sinful world and decides to bring judgment. And commentators tell us that, depending on how you read the story, for about 120 years, Noah was working on this ark. This wasn't overnight, right? This is four football, sta- four football fields long ark. So for about 120 years, with every hammer, he's crying out, judgment is coming. Repent, turn, there's safety here. Come to the Lord. 120 years, and eventually that day stops, and the flood's coming. I read a number of sermons this week in trying to understand this. There was a sermon by a pastor named Mark Driscoll who described this very well. He, he described for me the scene in a way that I got it. I want to read you what he says. I want you to picture yourself with Noah, and this is how he describes it. Picture Noah looking out and seeing the dark clouds rolling in. He sees everyone that he's preached to for 120 years, sees everyone that had mocked him and ignored him. And Noah looks up at the sky, and it's starting to get dark. It's going to rain at any moment. God's patience has come to the end of its tether, and all that's left is instant justice. I want you to stand there with Noah. I want you to look over your city. I want you to see your mom and dad. I want you to see your brothers and sisters. I want you to see your coworkers. I want you to see the kids riding their bikes down the street in your neighborhood. I want you to see all the people that you love who don't care about God. And if you don't know God, I want you to see yourself. And then the door shuts. And no one gets to repent of their sin now. No one gets to be saved from judgment now. And as you stand there with Noah and his family, you begin to hear the thunder and the lightning, and the door is closed, and you begin to feel the rumble. It gets louder and louder, just beating on the roof. You can hear the animals starting to scream in terror. You can hear the women weeping, the husbands embracing their wives in the dark, and rain begins to just pour down on the roof. The wind kicks up against it and hammers along the sides. He goes on to describe, perhaps as this door is closed, you begin to hear the shrieks and the screams of everyone on the outside. The elderly and the sick would have been the first to drown. Describes how the young men who had some strength would have climbed up to the roofs or to the trees or to the hills or to the mountains and with bloodied hands they would have tried to outrun God's judgment. And yet it kept coming. And it kept coming for 40 days and 40 nights so that eventually your strength fades so that the strongest could not swim fast enough or far enough to escape the judgment of God. And eventually, everyone and everything dies. He describes almost as if in the beginning moments you might have even heard some swim to the ark and bang on the door and beg for it to be opened until with enough passing of time, you get this eerie quiet. Everyone has perished. 
If you Google Noah's Ark and look at the images, you'll see fluffy clouds and cute animals. I was pointed to this one particular painting by a a French painter. And in his depiction of Noah's Ark, the painting is of this vast, empty sea with a sole rock protruding out, three babies on top with a mother and father sinking, trying desperately to push a fourth onto the rocks and being swept up, some bodies floating by and vultures soaring over above. Whatever Noah's ark is, it's not a cute story. It's a story of the wrath of God, of the final and full instantaneous judgment of God. Now here's the thing, at this point, we don't like any of that. We recoil, we're deeply bothered. We might even respond and say things like, God should have tried to rescue them. He built an ark. He built an ark. And certainly the God who would have thought enough to spare spiders would have been more than glad to spare sons and daughters of men, but none were willing. We would respond and say, God should have given them more time. Genesis 5 recounts no less than 1,100 years of history. That's a 1,000 years of waiting patiently with one generation after another watching sin, watching people destroy themselves and each other and patiently standing back. There's 120 years of building an ark in the middle of the desert, preaching, come, be spared, be rescued, turn to the Lord. Now is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Genesis 6 through 9 even says, even in the last seven days, there was time. And the point is, even if you give them a thousand years, nay, if you give them two thousand years, it won't be enough time. In fact, the one time Jesus speaks of Noah, it's to make that point. Jesus says, do you know, people were eating and drinking and getting married and carrying on with life. And judgment came. And in that moment, the door was closed and nothing could be done. And his point was to say, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. That the day of judgment will again come. And no matter how much you warn and how much you plead and how much you invite, people will eat and drink and give themselves in marriage and carry on with life until the time comes when it's too late. We'd say... God should have made a way, he built an ark. We'd say God should have given them time, he gave them thousands of years, hundreds of years. Maybe at at last we'd finally just rise up and say, you know what, God just shouldn't do that. God should not judge anyone. How dare God do that? We read Genesis 39 and we go, how dare God do that? There was a Croatian scholar who said, you know, to be honest, anyone who thinks that God shouldn't execute judgment or justice is someone who's never really suffered. In fact, he goes on to say, he even says, if you come up with that kind of an idea, it's probably because you've lived a safe suburban life. That's how he describes it. 
because you've lived this cushy, quiet, lovely, suburban life. Because anyone who's suffered in the real world where homes are burned and children are raped and girls are stolen and wives are killed and shoppers in a mall in Kenya are murdered, in the real world to go there and say, no one should be judged, there should be no justice, is to, is to say something that cannot be stomached. It means you've never really suffered. Because if that happened to you, the first thing you do is grab a sword. And the only thing that would make you put that sword down is if you believe there's a God who's going to settle the score so I don't have to. Rather than fueling violence, the belief that there is a God who is just is the only thing that can end it. The only way I don't have to settle the score is if I believe there's a God who has said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so if I trust him to have the final word on rape and murder and human trafficking, I don't have to pretend to have the final word. You don't want a God who winks at violence, who shoves rape under the rug, who shrugs at human trafficking. We need a God of judgment and justice. And if this idea of a world swept up under God's judgment bothers you, troubles you, here's what I want to say. All that means is that you've actually understood the passage. And all it means is you've actually got a heart that is very similar to the heart of God. It might surprise you to know this, but you know who was more bothered than anyone else? God was. In fact, Genesis 6, verses 6 and 7 says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What that means is that when he looked upon human sinfulness, this wasn't a God that was just rubbing his arms to ready to go, all right, let's, let's bring down judgment. This is a God who, though he was completely independent, he didn't need anyone, didn't need anything, he loved human beings so much that he tied his own heart with them so that their sin actually grieved him. He was bothered. He suffered. His joy was now connected to how they were doing. It deeply grieved the heart of God to see the sinfulness of man. And that's when you realize this is not a distant, cold, callous God. This is a God so near that your sin hurts him. I don't know if you've thought of God that way. When a stranger on Roosevelt Boulevard does something wrong, it doesn't affect me in the least. When my wife does something wrong, it tears my heart apart. God is so close, your sin actually hurts him. He's not so far removed that he's just going, what a mess up. But so close that he's grieved and suffers for your sin. So that the Bible can say, as it does in Ezekiel, the Lord takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. So that it can say, as it says in 2 Peter, the Lord desires that none should perish, but that all should be saved. And because of that love and because of that desire, there's a second way in which God responds. Let me finish with that. What's the second way? God responds to human sinfulness by judging sinners, but here's the other part. God responds also by saving sinners. Right? Is that not the point of the story? Is everyone destroyed in the flood? No. Who's saved? Eight people. Who are the eight? There's Noah and his wife and his three sons 
and their wives. Now, I'll finish quickly, but walk this out with me for a second. Those eight get saved. Let's talk about the seven first. Let's leave Noah out. Why do those seven get saved? You could read Genesis 6 through 9 a thousand times over. There's not a single word about their merit. There's not a word about their qualifications. It's almost like dumb luck. They just happen to be married to the right guy, kids of the right guy. Their only qualification and merit is that they're connected to Noah. That's it. There's nothing for them to boast in, nothing for them to brag in. There's not a single word written about their character, nothing that distinguished them from all the people that perished. The only thing they had going for them is they were connected to Noah. And by his obedience and his righteousness, they were saved. And I don't know about you, but you start to see some shadows beginning to emerge. Did you hear that? They had nothing to offer. Nothing to brag about, nothing to boast in, nothing that set them apart from all their neighbors that were perishing. Nothing that set them apart from the guy across the street who was perishing. The only thing they had was they had a personal relationship with Noah, and so they were going to be saved. And then let's talk about that eighth guy, Noah. Why does God save him? Now, you'll never respond to anything I ask, but if I were to ask you why did God save Noah, probably you would throw back some good answers like, he was good, he was righteous, he was different than everyone else in his generation. I read through some kids' storybook Bibles this week. I read one, and it said exactly what you would think. God was upset because all the people had forgotten but Noah. Except for Noah, Noah did what was right and good, and so God spared him. Here's the only problem. That misses a huge part of the story. Because look at Genesis 6, verse 7 and 8. Here's what it says. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why was Noah saved? Because Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word found favor is the same word, and it's the first time it ever appears in the Bible for grace. It's the first time grace shows up in the Bible. And what it says is, why was Noah saved? Because he found grace. What's grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So why was Noah saved? Because Noah got what he didn't deserve. He found grace. He found favor. What that means is that God would have been just as just to let Noah drown with everybody else. And that what Noah deserved, just like everybody else, was to drown. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that Noah wasn't a good guy. You keep reading the next verses, and it says Noah was blameless, and Noah walked with the Lord, and Noah was a good man. All those things are true, but here's the point. He's not that good. You know how I know? You know how I know he's not that good? Because what was the flood? 
The flood was God going to wipe everything out and start over, right? He was going to wipe it all clean, wipe sin out. He was going to start over. He was essentially going to give creation a new start. In fact, if you go back and read some of the language, it's like decreation and recreation language. What I mean by that is, look, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's God created the creeping things and the beasts of the field and the men. And then when it talks about the flood, it says, I'm going to wipe out the men, I'm going to wipe out the, the beasts of the field, I'm going to wipe out the creeping things. It's almost like he's undoing everything he did, and he's going to start over. Or, or there'll be language of, in creation, look, you had the waters, and the land emerges from the waters, because it was covered. What does the flood do? It covers all that land up again, so that it's almost like it starts over, and then when the flood recedes, the land emerges back up from the water. It's like a, a restart. It's, if you grew up playing Nintendo, it's like reset, right? I'm, I'm dating myself there. But it's like you hit reset because you, you didn't like how the game was going. You're going to start it over again. That's what God did. He's going to wipe everything out so that when Noah steps out of the ark, it's almost like here's another Adam again. Here's a, a fresh start. But you know how I know he wasn't that good? He gets out of the boat in Genesis 9. You don't get one story, you don't get maybe 10 verses in before Noah is passed out drunk and naked. And his pervert son does something and they have to judge humanity again. And you don't get a chapter in till you're right back where you started. It's like you, you go, what did all that accomplish? A few weeks ago, Binu was preaching and he said, it's, it's like a stain on a shirt that no matter how many times you scrub, no matter how many times you put it in the wash, it's not going away. It's like if a Sunday school teacher were sitting with some kids and said, what went into the ark? And the kids shouted back, Noah, good, what else? His family, good, what else? The animals, good, what else? Sin goes into the ark. So that even though this earth is wiped clean again, the moment that door throws open and Noah is the first human being to step foot on the ground, sin comes right back into the world. And that means either God is a colossal fool who thought this was going to do something that it didn't, or that all of that was a pattern, a shadow that was getting you ready for something else. And of course, Noah is a shadow for Jesus Christ. The faithful preacher who would come and call to sinners, come. Now is the day of salvation. Be reconciled to God. Be right with God, pleading with sinners. Here was Jesus, the one who was going to suffer for sinners, as God would, in a, no way, in a way that no one else would. Here is Jesus, so that on his cross, the judgment for sinners and the salvation of sinners meet. Here is Jesus on whom the ocean of our sin falls so that he drowns in the flood of our sin so that we might be saved. He's going to drown in God's wrath so that we might be saved so that we, almost by dumb luck, or a better word would be grace, like Noah's family, though we had no merit, nothing to boast in, nothing that sets us apart from the thousands and millions of people that live in Philadelphia and in the places you live in, we, simply because we were connected to him, would be saved. So that by his obedience and his righteousness, 
were saved. Because just like they had a personal relationship with that first Noah, we have a better relationship with the better Noah, the true Noah, who's going to bring about a new creation, but it won't be one stained with sin like the first Noah. It'll be one where there is no more sin. And this better Noah is also going to bring about this creation through judgment. Hear that. Seven Mile Road, hear that with me again. This better Noah is going to bring about a new creation, but it's also going to come through judgment. Because if that flood teaches us anything, it's that there's another one coming. And if Jesus warns us of anything, it's that you and I are going to be carrying on with life, and it's going to come. And there's going to be a day where that door closes. And everyone who's on the outside is going to find themselves banging on that door, begging for it to be opened, and it will not be. Because today is the day that it's opened. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Don't delay for a moment. Fly to Christ. So that all who are in him would be saved from the wrath that is to come. Let's pray.